Hello and welcome to the Happy Baby Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about what to do if you are concerned about your child's progress in school. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Clara O'Byrne to discuss this and to share her thoughts. Dr. Clara O'Byrne is a chartered psychologist with an expertise in the areas of education, positive parenting, particularly for children with additional needs, and positive psychology coaching for well-being. Her interests include responding to and coping with a diagnosis of additional needs, transition from primary to post-primary, and promoting psychological well-being, resilience, and self-compassion in young people. This is a great opportunity for parents to get information about where to start and what to do if they feel their child may require additional support in school. Dr. Clara has also kindly prepared a download detailing some of the steps she'll be discussing today. This will be available from our website, corkchildrensclinic.com. If you like our podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with anyone who you think would like it to. We'd really appreciate the support. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. Today we are talking to Dr. Clara Byrne about what you should do if you are worried about your child's progress in school. Welcome, Clara. Well, thanks very much, Frank. It's lovely to be here. Um, It's a great opportunity to chat to a bigger audience of parents. Um, Okay, so my name is Clara. I'm a chartered psychologist. I'm a teacher. I'm a parent. Um, I've worked in special schools and the disability sector for over 20 years. I've had various roles in that sector. I've been a teacher in different types of schools, different types of special schools. I've been a third level lecturer. I've taught teachers for pre-service and in-service. And I was an NCSE advisor for five years. And then I'm also a retrained as a psychologist. Um, So I have um, quite an extensive knowledge of the disability area. And in my private practice, I try to work to support parents and young people about finding solutions to the problems and also emphasizing, I suppose, what is strong as opposed to what is wrong, because we can tend to orientate to the deficit and the problem a huge amount of the time. And sometimes it can be just as reassuring to know that you're doing some things right, a lot of things right, often is the case. That's very good. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. And just sort of moving on from from the areas that you're working in, from a practical point of view, for instance, like, so if a parent is worried about their child is not doing well in school, what should they do? Okay, so first of all, I suppose any advice that we're giving today, so we're in November 21, yeah. um, is based on the practices and guidelines that are in November 21, because sadly, one of the features of the disability and special education area is the goalposts move okay. regularly and often. So what I would say to parents is trust your instincts. Generally, I've never, in 20 years, I've never met a parent yet who's wrong. If they have an idea that something is wrong, they're usually right, but it's how to go about finding what help they need. So that's why I would say take a deep breath and try to identify what exactly are you worried about. So is it academic progress? Is it the reading and the writing? Is it more social and emotional? Are they 
different to their peers in some ways because I find it's really helpful for parents to focus the conversation so that when you turn to a professional for help, you know exactly what help you're looking for. And that's actually something that I do in my own practice. I help parents who who have a sort of a general overarching concern clarify exactly what their concern is so that they can be pointed in the right direction. So I suppose a lot of parents lie awake at night thinking, is she or he normal? Is is it normal? Uh, Are they doing the normal thing? And so firstly, there's no such thing as normal. Um, statistically there is an average so people are either below average above average or average but normal isn't really a concept because kids I mean you know that in your own practice there's no such thing as a normal baby no very true they're so different different. they develop at different rates they they have their own personalities so I park the normal question and what I would say is let's look at it two ways when you compare him or her to his peers and siblings, is there a difference? Are they different in some way to the other people the same age as them or to your son and daughter at the same age? Then the other way to look at it is compared to himself or herself, depending. Have they changed? Are they no longer able to do what they used to be able to do? Or do you feel they're capable of more and they're not doing it? So those two lenses, it's kind of the interpersonal lens and the intrapersonal lens, are really, really useful for helping to define what the issue is. And the other really practical thing I would say to parents is, could you answer the question, is this having a functional impact? Is it affecting their day-to-day life? Is their reading so bad that they're avoiding homework and crying going to school? Is their difficulty making friends so bad that they're hiding in their room? So is it having a functional impact yeah, on their day to day life? Do you know children are just odd too? Do you know, <laughs> that, and that's okay. That's fine too. Do you okay. know? So that's kind of I suppose the first piece of advice I would say: clarify your concern. Okay, very very good advice. And if it's a, at school age, so the children are going to school, how can the parents find out what is going on in school and get help for their child this way? Really? Okay, so I suppose preschool age. Firstly, like if you're in the preschool system, you're probably going to go to your GP, health nurse, go through that system. Generally speaking, the preschool age are fairly well monitored. Do you know you still have the regular checkups and things like that? So preschool age, I would say your first protocol is probably your public health nurse or your GP. And they will probably direct you to what's called the assessment of need process. And the assessment of need process, you can find out about it on the HSC website. It's probably a perfect example of the goalpost moving currently because that used to be a full multidisciplinary assessment. But for, I suppose, funding reasons, that's changed in the last couple of months to what's called a preliminary team assessment, where it's really just a screening. They're not going to give you a diagnosis at the end of it. But nevertheless, I would say to any parent, particularly a younger child, it's still a really useful process. As a starting point. As a starting point, exactly. It kind of points you in the right direction. So then in terms of your school-age child, I suppose the probably the most important thing is to try to build a working relationship with the school. Because do you know what? If your child is in junior infants or senior infants and maybe mothers coming along behind them, you're going to be working with this school and this school principal for eight, nine, ten years, yeah. maybe 12, 13 years, depending yeah. on how many are there. Yeah. So 
that parent-teacher, the parent-school collaboration is really, really important. And it can sometimes get lost, particularly because um, I said some parents bring their own stuff to the table. True. Schools have changed a lot since you were in school, Frank. Absolutely. <laughs> I suppose parents might find it a bit daunting to it talk is. to teachers as well because... It it's kind of, the, as you said, it takes them back to when they were in school. As Very well. much yeah. so. And, and and teachers talk, you know, the professionals, all professionals are guilty of it. They kind of talk a very specific language yeah. and they make assumptions that parents understand it. So I suppose... Are there strategies that you'd use? There maybe? is. There's some very... I suppose the first thing I would say is you kind of have to really reflect and park the emotional stuff. And if, to be, if, you're, if your child has a disability or an educational need, you're their advocate. And in many cases, you nearly have to be their case manager. So in that, when you're putting on that hat, you need to be very clear, very organized. Um, you need to inform yourself of the facts. So there's no point. It's not very effective to rush into the school off the back of a room or he said, she said. So one of the first most important ways to, to arm yourself with one of the facts is reading what are called circulars. So every school in the country gets its guidelines from the Department of Education in what are called circulars. That's just the word they use. They're called circulars. And they're on the DES website. And it's really important that you're familiar with them because Johnny down the road, for example, might have got an Irish exemption for anxiety five years ago. But that rule changed in 2019. And now the rule for the Irish exemption is now below the 10 percentile in an area of literacy. So the rules change. So the rules change all the time. So it's really important to keep yourself abreast of the rules or at least trust that the school will be giving you the most up-to-date information. It's highly likely they'd be lying to you. They're just telling you what the most up-to-date information is. And you mentioned the DS? So that's the Department of Education and Science. Science. Okay. So I'll do a handout to accompany this podcast and I'll put the websites and the words on them because, as you say, there's so many acronyms, completely different language. So first things first, I suppose, take a deep breath, park your own stuff, realise that in this moment you're going to have to work with these people for the better part of a decade yeah. You're going to have to build a collaborative relationship with the school. Course, yeah. And the school wants to build a collaborative relationship with you because likewise, you know, it, it's a long-term partnership. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is if you have a concern, arrange a meeting. And I do mean arrange a meeting. I would never advocate doorstepping a, stu- a teacher, okay. catching them a drop-off or pick-up. I mean, it's unlikely to happen these days with COVID. And, of and course, the, yeah. But just full stop, it's not ideal because... Firstly, if you catch a teacher on the hop, it's highly unlikely that they'd be in any way prepared to talk to you. They'll be distracted because they're going to be trying to do a thousand other things anyway. And it probably isn't in line with the school policy. Policy, of course, yeah. It wouldn't be in line with the school policy. And also, you know, if somebody came into your place of work and wanted your attention instantaneously, you'd find it quite hard and it's their place of work. So the first thing I would say is arrange a meeting. So that's like email, phone, whatever the school policy is and try to arrange a face-to-face meeting. Now with COVID, that could be Zoom, which you know, but so be it. So first things first, arrange a meeting, a formal set-down meeting, okay? The formal meeting is helpful because it means the teacher's class is covered. So when she she or he meets you, they have that 40 minutes or 45 minutes to be present, present with you. Yeah, yeah. They're not distracted. Yeah. They're not half listening to the kids, that kind of way. And also gives you a chance to prepare your questions. So the second thing I would say is 
have a very clear agenda. Even send the questions beforehand in an email. I'm worried about Mary's mm-hmm. reading. Very good advice. I've yeah. noticed Johnny's writing isn't as good as his sister's was at the same age. You know, I've noticed Mary has no playdates at the weekend. Does she have any friends? Do you know? So, so really have very clear questions. And if you send them to the teacher beforehand, she'll know what to expect. Absolutely. And she can have the information ready. There's no ready. surprises. No surprises. Yeah. She could have the information ready for you. She could be telling you that Mary is in the thick of it at every lunchtime. Okay. And maybe she's worn out by the weekend. Do you know? Yeah. That it might yeah, yeah. be as bad as you think it is. Or equally, the teacher might share your concerns. Yes, and, and that's where the, you know, and that's where it is important to give everybody ample time. Then the next thing I would say, and this is probably the most practical thing I would say, buy a notebook, put your child's name on the front of it, and that is Johnny's notebook or Mary's notebook, because it's really, really important to record everything for your own sanity. Really, bring a notebook everywhere because it slows down the conversation that you're having with the teacher so you can say hang on a second now who did you say after contact and you can write down the name of the person oh, very good advice. Contact. Yeah, yeah. so it slows down the conversation it's a record as well as it's a record yeah. of what happened yeah it's a memory aid to you because yeah. you can write down on the piece of paper going in and ask her about you know yeah, so you can course, write down your yeah. questions if she references another professional or a process like the assessment of need process is called the AON process. A teacher might just go, oh, you need to do an AON. So that's the language. Again. And that's the language. So it allows you to slow things down. Yeah. The other thing I would say, I suppose, and this is, I suppose I've noticed this, but as a parent, because, you know, I, I've been on the other side of the table, um, and also as a professional, and I'm sure you can experience this too, Frank, sometimes professionals, we tend to dump information on parents. We just throw it at them. And I know, because I've been that parent, the parent is sitting out in the car afterwards going, what did she say? Yeah, what happened there? What, yeah. happened? what am I supposed what did to I do? Miss? Yeah, what? absolutely. So it's hugely important to bring yeah. a notebook. For, and it's the simplest thing in the world. Bring a little notebook. Very for practical, reason. but very, very good. And, and sometimes what could help too, maybe, is if two of you can go. Of course, Because one yeah. person can do the writing, one person can do the listening. There's a better chance of the information actually landing. But practically, you know, that's not always yeah. useful. So a notebook. The last thing I would say then about strategically managing schools is know their calendar. So schools run an academic year and they run a different calendar to the rest of the world, <laughs> you know. So if you were to email a teacher, say, on the Friday morning of the midterm break, chances are you won't get a reply. Very unlikely. It's highly unlikely. When they're in another space, they're taking a midterm. Completely. But it also means, we'd say the week of the midterm, the Monday following after, your email might get lost. And she might never get back to you, not intending not to get back to you, but it would have been lost in eight days worth of. So think about when you're contacting schools. Also, you're probably not going to get the best of a teacher on the day of the school play, for example. Yes. Did you know? So think about the school calendar. You also have to think strategically about the school calendar because teachers, particularly principals, plan their resources and how they allocate the resources about six months in advance. They're usually planning in February for the following September. So if you think about it, enrollment for schools... Um, for special classes and, and joining school happens in October. It happens 11 months in advance. Oh, wow. So, uh, uh, you know, so October 1st is usually the opening for the following year's enrollment. If you're looking at primary to post-primary transition, which is a point where a lot of parents get worried, Yes. realistically, the 
school principal would need to have reports and information in their hand by February, March, because if they have to hire extra staff or if they have to apply for extra staff, they need time to advertise, get sanctioned for the post, advertise the post, interview the post and get the person in situ by September. So what you're saying is there's a a long enough process Mm which would mean that if you have something that you need to highlight it, do it sooner rather than later. Because it might take seven months before the allocation of support will be in place. Absolutely, 100%, yeah. So that's where this collaboration of parent and principal or parent at school comes in. If it's a working relationship where there's regular communication and no one's trying to score points off anybody and everybody's very, very clear then the principal will let you know, look, I need that by the 1st of February or I need that by whatever. Yeah. Or Look, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to write to X person. I let you know by the end of the month that they've gone back to me. So when that collaboration is happening, yeah. everybody knows, everybody's clear. And, but and I also think is. when you communicate with the parent as a principal or as a teacher and it's back and forth, that's better for everybody. Much better. Much better. So yeah. that collaboration. The silence is where people start to think, well, I wonder, am I getting the support or I wonder, are things progressing? That communications. And that's an email or, you know. And just emails. I mean, yeah. and the beauty, in many, I mean, I know COVID has been, has had hugely negative impact on many people, yeah. but one of the positive impacts has been people, email has become second nature. Arranging a Zoom call has become second nature. So in many so. ways, People who mightn't have had great digital literacy before, and many teachers wouldn't have had, and many parents wouldn't have had. We all know how to do a Zoom call now. We all know how to send an email now. We're used to doing it, you know? Absolutely. Because sometimes the school would prefer to use, like, the Seesaw app or whatever. So COVID has allowed us to become familiar with with what? With those things. With those things, which helps, yeah. So you talked about supports that children might need. Um, you often hear that some children are seen to get different supports to other children yeah. in school. Why is that? Okay, so that can be hugely frustrating. Um, first of all, again, you're going back to the fact. Make sure you know your facts, not, a, not an anecdote or a story. The, and often those the tension comes from, say, reading on social media, oh, my child got an Irish exemption or my child got an iPad or that sort of stuff. So I suppose there's one thing... I'm a great fan of social media support groups for parents. I think they're brilliant. There's a a really strong evidence base for peer support, the social support that you get from peer support. So if you can link in with other parents who've walked the same path as you, it's really, really helpful. And there's lots of really useful Facebook groups out there around that. However, the information that you might be getting from someone whose child was eight years ago in the system isn't going to be necessarily accurate. Or the information you get about a child in school A is going to be different to school B because schools allocate resources in different ways. What do I mean about that? There is a very, very significant change made to how special education resources are allocated in 2017. So it's not that long ago. And at the time, there wasn't a massive publicity campaign about it. There was, but it doesn't seem to have been picked up. Picked up, yeah. Picked up hugely. So since September 2017, the concept of entitled to supports is really gone. So you do not need a diagnosis to get support. The term used in schools now is called identified need. So that means that basically every school principal in the country, now we're talking about mainstream schools here, yes. special classes, special schools, or a whole other kettle of fish. 
so every school in the country, so St. Mary's, right, gets essentially a part of our residence program for education based on their demographics, based on how many students they have and, and things like that. The list is actually on the NCSE website, which is one of the websites that put in the handout. Great. So say St. Mary's gets 100 hours and the principal of St. Mary's has 100 hours that is what he has to divide amongst every child in the school depending on their need. And obviously that need changes every year. And obviously the need in St. Mary's will be different to the need in St. Jack's, yeah. for example. So even though Principal A might have 100 hours and Principal B might have 100 hours, what they have to do with the hours might be very different. So that identified need but basically means that it is up to the principal and their special education teaching team to look at the students they have, look at the professional, some of them will have professional reports, some of them won't, and go, right, Mary's going to need three hours of learning support this, or we, you know, special support this week. John's going to need two hours, but we only have an hour to give to each. So they have to make that decision and they try. So you, so you, me, any of us as a parent, we go in all guns blazing about our individual child. Of course. And about what the school should, should be, be doing for yeah. them. The principal is sitting in his office looking at the needs of a hundred children, going, how can I stretch the resources to make sure every child gets a fair whack of the support? So Does is it fair sense? it makes sense? Does, is it fair to say so that the resources that the principals are allocated are underfunded? Oh significantly so. I mean I, okay. I, that wouldn't be a controversial statement to make it the teachers, the teachers' unions, I mean, yeah. every service will, would be quite happy to say that. The idea behind identified needs, moving from diagnosis to identified yeah. needs, is very laudable. It's in line with inclusive practice because if you're only relying on diagnosis, you're giving a leg up to people who can afford private diagnosis. Oh, I understand, yeah. So if, if Mary is having difficulty reading, but her parents can't afford to fork out for the dyslexia assessment, yes. she's still going to get support because her teachers will have identified she's struggling with reading. Johnny's parents have paid for the assessment, so we know Johnny has dyslexia, which is really helpful for Johnny because he feels at least he knows what's going on with him. But the teacher will support him in the same way that they're supporting Mary, to all intents and purposes. Do, okay. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They'll still get the same level of support. So it, it, it Which makes, is the right thing to do. Absolutely. So the idea of identified needs that break between diagnosis and need was very equitable yeah. and very laudable if it was funded properly. Yeah, this is always the way, isn't it? If it was funded properly. If it was funded yeah. properly, yeah. So, and again, that comes back to that. I'm 21, nearly 22 years in this sector. I have never met a principal yet who's going out of their way to not give a child Of course, support. yeah. Every single principal I have ever met with in my working life has always done their best with what they They have have. and I I think that's the and if you have a good relationship with the school you can ask the school what you as a parent can do can you lobby a TD can you write letters can you do fundraisers you know there are ways that you can work with the school to get them more resources yeah. Um, rather than clashing heads over the lack of resources. Yeah. So what you're saying is that it's every 
person's responsibility to help the school out really. Very much so, yeah. yeah if, if, so. You're, if your son or daughter is attending. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. You know, and that's where the really active parents' associations yeah. come in, you know, buying class sets of iPads and that sort of stuff. Yeah. That helps schools, it really does. Too. Yeah. So if a parent decides after talking with the school that they need professional advice, where do they go next with that then? So if that's the conclusion mm. of the meeting with the teacher yeah. and with the principal and they need professional advice, what does that mean and where, where do they okay. go for that then? So hopefully, because the meeting, if, if it's well organised and well planned and you've got your head clear, it, it, the, the paths you're going will be very clear. You either know that it's speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, or, or you might be unsure, in which case you might go for more general assessment. Yes. So there's two routes, private or public. So the public route is essentially that AON or assessment of need process. Um, so you can just apply for that through the HSE website yourself. You get what's now called a preliminary team assessment where usually two clinicians will assess, will meet your child and give you a direction in which to go. They'll say, okay, this child really needs occupational therapy. This child might need speech therapy. We think this child needs psychological input. They'll give you a direction to go. But it is important to remember at that point now, because they've changed the funding model for that, it is only a preliminary screening process as opposed to a diagnostic process. If the issue is that you needed a referral to CAMS, which is the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Services, that would be through your GP. Um, you could also, some some prime, so primary care is your occupational therapy and your physiotherapy and your speech therapy. Your community-based. That's in your community-based. Yeah. So that's GP referral or some practices allow parent referral. You can self-refer. Okay. Now, so you basically have the public services are either through the assessment need process, which is on the HSC website, the community care, which is in the primary care centres that a lot of the bigger towns yeah. have, or your GP referral to a specialist service. Every single one of those services has extensive waiting lists. Yeah, I was going to ask across the time frames with this. Now, it depends. You can be lucky or not lucky. It okay. um, depends on where you live. Um, certainly, that the larger urban areas have longer waiting lists. So then your other choice is private. Okay. And Unfortunately, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Frank, the yeah. private industry is fairly unregulated in Ireland. Yes. Sadly, it's very unregulated. So it's clear enough for speech therapists and occupational therapists. Speech therapists and occupational therapists are what are called co-registered. Yeah. So the government has essentially validated yeah. their qualifications. And it, it, it's very clear. So, And somebody will be very clear about it. And usually private practitioners are very clear about who they're affiliated with and, and what their validation is. So... For a speech therapist or an occupational therapist, you want co-re-registered. Almost any other professional you're dealing with as of today isn't currently co-re-registered. Yes. So the likes of play therapists will have their professional organisation, which um, I'll put that up on the link. Osteopaths, you yeah, have your own one, don't do. you, Frank? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and so then psychologists are remarkably unregulated in Ireland, which is very sad and very worrying and, and I suppose the public are very vulnerable for that. So in Ireland, the Psychology Society of Ireland, which is called the PSI, is a self-governing body as in we, we regulate ourselves. Okay. Most psychologists in Ireland will either be a member of the PSI, which is the Psychology Society of Ireland, or some are often members of the BPS, which is the British Psychological Society, just for a variety of reasons. They've yeah. trained over there. So, mm-hmm. so generally Very speaking, similar. you're either going to PSI yeah, or yeah. BPS. 
What it really is important for parents to remember is there is no legal protection for the term psychologist. Anybody can just stick up a plaque and call themselves a psychologist. And also people with, with what's called a basic or undergraduate degree in psychology can refer to them as a psychologist because they might be a member of the Psychology Society of Ireland um, or a member of the British Psychological Society because you have grades of membership. All right, okay. And so the highest membership in, in the PSI, which is Psychology Society of Ireland, is called Chartered Psychologist. And that, that would be the people on the PSI directory. So if you look onto the PSI website, you'll see that they have a list of psychologists and that would be on the PSI directory and all those people would chart what's called chartered status. So those, those chartered psychologists, I presume, are the people that then are able to do these assessment of needs. Yes. So because it's a all, very detailed reporting, it is. isn't it? So there's lots of different groups yeah. within that. So for the public, I suppose what you need to know is in the UK, I believe it's chartered as well. They change from registered psychologist to chartered. So whether it's a BPS chartered psychologist yeah. or a PSI chartered psychologist, if you're going for chartered psychologist, you're getting the highest grade of membership. Okay. That those, I suppose, bodies have said this person has the highest possible qualifications in the area that they're practicing in. Yeah. There are divisions in that, like you've got educational psychologists, coaching psychologists, counselling psychologists, working organisational psychologists, yes. forensic psychologists. So you could drive yourself mad trying to get into the minutia of the specialisms. What I would say to any parent is, look, at if they have chartered psychology status, that means they're ethically obliged to only work in the areas they're competent in. Oh, yes, That's part of, of the agreement they yeah. make when they say, I'm going to be a charged psychologist. Yeah. So they're not going to offer you a service that they don't have expertise in in any case. Because many psychologists, their expertise would, would straddle two or three areas, depending on how long they're in the field. Of course. Yeah. Um, or they might have trained in one area and then often trained in another area. Yeah. I'm sure it would be the same in the That It's called competencies, is the word used. And it often crosses multiple areas. So if you're just looking around going, what am I going to do? If you ring up somebody who is a chartered psychologist, they're not going to offer a service that they're not competent in because they're not allowed to do that. So, so that's your protection there. Um, and also, I suppose, if it's word of mouth, pick, them up, pick up the phone, give them a ring. Yeah, know? and find out that. Find way. out, and ask And what questions. you want from that person who ethically can do the report, but also has the competencies to be able to prepare that report yeah. for the HSE. Completely, yeah. yeah. And, and generally, you'll find the vast majority of practitioners are very open about their qualifications. Yeah. Very good. Do you know, I, if they weren't, I'd be worried. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does, yeah. Do you know, most yeah. people go, look, this is my number, there's my name on the directory, this is what I can do. If you're not comfortable with that, I can direct you to somebody else. Oh, very good, do you yeah. Know, that yeah. sort of thing. Okay, so that's the process for getting sort of the reporting, that professional advice that you need. Now, the other thing is that parents pay a lot of money for professional reports and often the HSE has given them a report too and there can be pages of recommendations. Who's responsible for all of that? So you have two reports coming in, the assessment of need, one from uh, private means, one from HSE. What happens there? Yeah, okay, so so that's a big stumbling block for parents big stumbling block because often reports 
particularly the public ones, tend to just arrive in the post too, and you can get a 15-page report and, and it, it's written in a language that's difficult. Yeah. So, okay, so the first thing I would say is generally reports are written with the data or the information that was gathered during the assessment process at the front and the recommendations, like what you're supposed to do is at the back. Okay. So that's the general way they're written. Um, so look for the bit that's called recommendations. The other bit might we might need a dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> the other bit. Yeah, the um, so what I would say is, generally speaking, you should ask for a feedback session, you know, if, if possible. Um, it's not always possible. Um, most private practitioners will offer one, even if it's on. I mean, I do myself. If it's on so what you're saying is you go through the report. You can go through the report. The parent, yeah. Now, that's actually something I offer in my own practice, even yeah. for parents who've got, say, a HSC report and can't make our table, but okay. I, I can support parents doing that. Um, but generally speaking, if you're looking for the recommendations, schools are very helpful in helping oh, you want nice. to pick up the report is as well. I would say it's really important to look at the word recommendations. They're not directions, they're not orders, they're not this is, they're not promises that this is going to happen. Even in the HSC, it's called a service statement. And it's so so usually in the fine print of anything, you'll find the phrase subject to resources. So everything is subject to resources. Of course it is. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I suppose if you think about it from the clinician's point of view, if I'm writing a report, my ethical obligation is to identify the best practices in the interest of that particular child. So recommendations aren't shopping lists that everything has to be done on them because the funding wouldn't be there for that realistically. So their best practice for that particular child at that particular time. So what I would say to any parent is, look, try to get feedback if you can and identify the top three. Like, what am I supposed to do first? What am I supposed to do second? What am I supposed to do third? Or the school might help you with that. So prioritise another one. Yeah, because often you could have 20 recommendations. All right, okay. I mean, I would regularly write 20, 25 recommendations. But what I do in my own practice is I actually do write first steps. So I write a top three recommendations and then the rest. Because sometimes there will be recommendations for parents to action. So like you need to refer your child to the GP, you need to get a speech therapist, you need to go to a dietitian, and you need to look at their sleeping habits. And then others will be school-based. You know, this child needs an Irish exemption, this child needs work on their phonics, this child needs movement breaks, whatever it is. So some will be for the parents to do and some will be for the school to do. And that's, again, we'll go back to the communication part because it's not massively effective to just land the report into the teachers. I go, right, you do everything on that report now because I paid 600 euro for it. Because they can't. They, they simply don't have the resources, have the resources to do that. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of the time, they'll be doing some of it anyway. Yeah. Do you know a lot of it will be, do, be doing anyway? I guess it's a process of negotiation as well. Like exactly. In terms of what can you do? Yeah. Or what can you help? That's exactly what it is. What I say is, if you're going to get a report, don't just email it to the school. Arrange a meeting. Yeah. Email it to the school beforehand so you're not, you know, they can't expect them to read a 15-page document in a minute. So I would email the report to the school, arrange a meeting within a week or so, so they've had a chance to read it. And then you sit down and go, right, I'm advocating for my Mary and for my Johnny. And obviously I want as much as is possible from that report 
to be put in place for her or him. Yeah. And the school principal will be going, that's lovely. I have a hundred other children I have to consider. So let's have a back and forth about what we can do to accommodate your child based on the resources we have. And maybe you could do some outside of school and we could do some in school or we might be able to push them in group support, but we couldn't do one-to-one support because obviously that's more labour intensive. So there is that back and forth collaboration is hugely important. Okay, very good, very good. And finally, what's the most important first step, really? A notebook. Okay. I'm a big fan of the notebook. Do you Write know? it down. Because I would say, make notes of things that you observe at home that worry you. Even if you're in the kitchen and they do something odd or they're doing their homework and they, they work out their sum in a very odd way. Because the first thing anybody will ask you, if you were in any clinician, they'll go, what's the problem? What are you concerned about? Give yeah. me an example of what you're concerned about. You probably do that yourself, Frank. Do you? You're trying to you're trying to figure out yeah, what you're trying to say. When when mum presents with 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 the baby or the child, you're asking them, well, what is the problem? Can you give me instances, or can you give me things that you've noticed? Yeah. And it is. I very often we give parents things to write down yeah. before they come back for the follow up treatment. Yeah. So that they can say, well they're better in these areas or this is still a problem or we're still working on this. Probably similar in your... So I would say the same. I said, look, really, yeah. take notebook, put your child's name on the front of it, have it somewhere near you, I don't know, by the fruit bowl in the kitchen yeah. or something. So you remember that if somebody asks you what they do they do when they're reading, for example, you watch them try to work out a word of their homework and you write it down because... What happens, parents, when they're in a clinician's office? It all goes up their head. Yeah. You forget everything. I've been that parent. I, I've forgotten completely what I wanted to say. Yeah. And usually these people are very busy. They have very long waiting lists. You might have 40 minutes of their time. They, they can't give you any more time. So it is the most efficient thing for you. If you have a big long list of, I observed this, and I noticed when he's with his friends, he does this, or I noticed when he's watching television, he does this. So make a little notebook, make your observations. You can add to your notebook the little bits you read online. Yeah. That, you know, I read that this is a good book. What do you think of it? I read that this is a good website. Because parenting a child with special educational needs or disabilities happens at the same time as the rest of your life. You have to parent your other children. You have to do your job. Mm -hmm. You have to put food on the table. You have to do the laundry. You have to do the shopping. It's not like you're full-time at this. (laughs) So the notebook is great because in the two or three minute window you have to check the internet while you're having a cup of tea, write down that good website. So you can go back to it when you have another five minutes. So it's really useful for that sense. And the notebook also is useful for if you are ringing anybody Ask the name of the person you're talking to. Put it in your notebook. Last week I rang and I spoke to Mary and she said that X would be available on. Do you know what? Parenting is tough. Putting all your concerns and worries in the one spot allows you to make the most effective use of those five-minute windows that you have to put stuff down so that when you do have an actual time with a professional, you can make the most of it. Absolutely. So having that record means that you can very logically go through these things mm-hmm. with the professional when you're sitting across from them so that it's time well spent. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is the final person. thing I would say to any parent. 
is if they're listening to this podcast and if they've gone to the trouble of looking up a podcast and asking questions, it means they are doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. Parents are, we as parents are so hard on themselves. I would say trust your instincts, know you're doing a good job and I suppose just take a deep breath, you know, just it's, you are doing a good job. Okay. Clara, thank you very, very much for coming in today for the Happy Baby and Child podcast. And I look forward to coming back again. Well, that's it for today. I think you'll agree that was a very informative podcast. Our thanks to Dr. Clara O'Byrne for taking time to come in and have a chat. Until next time, goodbye. (music) Thank <music> you.